Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, folks, and welcome to another season and episode of Wisdom of Friends Show. I'm your host, Kyle Ross, and this is a special series and season of Olympic Mindsets. And today I have a very special guest, and that is Bria Larson, who is an Olympic gold medalist for Team USA. And Bria specializes in the breaststroke, and she won the gold medal in the 4 by 100 meter medley relay at the 2012 Summer Olympics in London. Bria is also a graduate of Texas A&M and has received an undergrad degree in psychology and a master's in sports management. Currently, she's training for the 2021 Olympic Games in Tokyo. Friends, Bria is also passionate about mentoring young athletes. Uh, She's also a professional speaker and a motivational consultant for business professionals and industries. It is also a passion to teach new and creative ways to build and maintain an Olympian mentality. In this episode, Bria and I talk about the different mental tools and frameworks that anyone in any occupation or any leadership position can create that Olympian mentality to set and accomplish their goals. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Bria Larson. So good morning, uh, Bria. Welcome to season 10 of the Wisdom of Friends show. I'm really excited and delighted that you took the time to be on this program. And so let me start off, Bria, with asking a simple question that how we kick off our show is, What's your favorite quotation or philosophy that you live by and uh, how have you applied it to your life? Oh, I wish I could have one answer, but I, I feel like there's a lot. But I, I think the, the main thing I've been working on the last couple of years is being kind to yourself. I think it's very easy to become your own critic and the fear of success can be crippling at times. And I feel like it's, it's a very easy thing to fail and it's a safe thing to fail in, in your mind. And, and I feel like we give each other or we give ourselves excuses of why we're not going to succeed because we're afraid of that success. And one of the biggest things I feel like everyone could do for themselves is learning how to become their own best friend. How would you like to be spoken to by your best friend? What is that inner dialogue that you're having in your mind constantly on a daily basis and learning how to understand and comprehend your inner dialogue and then learning how to change it to more benefit the goals that you have make a significant difference in your daily life. I, I really like that, Bria, because, uh, you know, it's really helps in getting, you know, being your best friend because spending time with yourself is something so valuable that most of us uh, normally don't do it so efficiently. And I think what you just shared makes absolute sense because being kind to ourselves. And and I remember you uh, mentioning the last time we talked was about having that happy mindset that drives uh, everything that we do in our lives. And you have a very simple technique of, you know, putting a pen in your mouth or something like that to keep your mind active and happy. Could you talk a little bit about that? How do you keep yourself like happy and, uh, you know, keep smiling because that really helps in you know, all the chemicals that we know that runs through our system, like the dopamine, serotonin, and all that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I I think that um, smiling when you're grumpy or rather depressed is is rather difficult to do. Um, You know, it's not something that you really feel like doing at the time. And so by grabbing a pen horizontally and sticking it in your mouth so that it's kind of forcing you to smile, it's just a constant physical reminder to continue doing that. And by going through five minutes of smiling, it really does change your mood. And I tend to be a rather anxious person. And so when I, when I tend to go into more anxious modes, I'll have a pen in my mouth to help calm me down. And it is the most simple thing. And sometimes because it's so simple, people won't do it. And that's a silly reason. Silly reason to not do something because it's easy. 
and trying to find those easy tricks that really make a difference in your daily habits is something that we should all try and focus a little bit more on. Right. Absolutely. Totally agree. So out of curiosity, Bria, uh, so you grew up in Mesa. So what was your childhood like and who are your major influences uh, as you were growing up and how did that shape your life? So I, growing up in Mesa, um, wasn't the easiest upbringing. I was in an area that was very low income, high poverty. I grew up with a lot of siblings, which even inhibited resources more. And I remember when I was four watching the Olympic games and seeing the gymnasts and just being completely enthralled with how powerful and beautiful and, and strong they were and wanting to be that, wanting to be that even metaphorical Olympic gymnast. And so I would do cartwheels in the front yard every day and do, you know, dance routines in my living room, just saying, I'm going to be the next Olympic gymnast. And um, I, I got a lot of teasing ridicule from family members and friends from all angles saying, you're going to be too tall. Like that's never going to happen. And I didn't want to listen to them. And it just made me want to, you know, continue to try and strive for that. So to be clear, Never once did I take a gymnastics lesson. It was literally just cartwheels in the front yard. Um, but I, I wanted to be something more. And I think that childlike ignorance and passion really drove me strong. And it really wasn't until my senior year in high school that I realized how important college was. And that was probably the best chance of getting out of my socioeconomic situation. And so I remember wanting to get a college scholarship in athletics. That was probably my best bet because I was financially independent by the age of 15. I had paid for my own braces. I was working a couple of different jobs, just trying to, to make it through and, and do everything on my own. And I thought swimming might be my best bet. So again, that was very ignorant of me to think that starting a swim club at the age of 17 would go anywhere. But I was determined and I knew in my heart that if I, I gave it everything I had, something could come from it. So I sat down with some local club owners um, in the area and I kind of explained my situation. And, and luckily, I was able to have a scholarship to swim for free in high school at that club team. And my first day on deck, my coach asked me if I had any Olympic aspirations and I kind of joked with him saying, well, I was going to be an Olympic gymnast when I was four, but it didn't really pan out. But I, you know, I, I always have that, that drive that someday I could reach something like that. And he just said, you know, well, lucky for you, swimming is just like gymnastics. And I kind of waited to hear his spiel and the way he explained swimming, just that it was, it was like a beautiful water dance that every time you dove into the water, you had to have the perfect angle and finesse and strength. And the way he worded it just kind of showed me that if you can change your perspective on something that seems difficult or boring and you learn how to be creative to entertain, entertain yourself in that way, you can really start to be passionate about the thing you're doing. And so I, I really started to fall in love with the sport that I thought was very boring, but I saw as an opportunity. And I figured if I can learn to love this and learn to appreciate the, the movement and the hard work of it, this might be my shot. And so going through my senior year, just with that mindset, I managed to get a partial scholarship at Texas A&M. And then at Texas A&M, I thought things were going to go just as smoothly, but I was very far behind. My academics were, I wasn't trained very well um, in school to be able to handle the collegiate academics. And then the training on the swimming side, I was about 10 years behind. I didn't have the aerobic capacity or the just the mental training in general to get through those types of practices. And I would often get um, told to move into another lane to finish the swim set because I was so much slower than my teammates. And I knew that I wanted to keep going, but I started to get a little depressed and, and humiliated by how far behind I was. And there was one morning in particular where I tried to eat my breakfast and I kept choking on my food because I was, I was too tired to eat. And then I tried to take a nap, but I couldn't sleep because I kept twitching from muscle recovery. And so I, I texted my mom this very sad, long message explaining that I wanted to come home. I wanted to quit. I didn't feel good enough. And she looked at this and sent back a very simply crafted message and just said, this is what it feels like to be a champion. And that really hit home to me. And I, I started to think that all the occupations in the world have their champions 
and they're probably exhausted at the end of every day because they're trying that hard. And I wanted to be a champion. I wanted to be that Olympian. And so if I strived to feel this tired every day, I could get there. But it was difficult because I was depressed. And that's when I kind of picked up that pen in the mouth smile trick. You know, just forcing myself to smile more every day. And then just learning different tools and techniques to kind of trick my brain and, and learn to be passionate again about the hard work and strive for the privilege of being that tired. Because, you know, especially with this pandemic, I don't think we realize a lot of the time what a privilege it is to work out. <laughs> you know, we, we've all had that privilege, but once gyms are closed and the pools are taken away and some of us are even inhibited from being able to go outside of our home, we now realize that when now that everything's kind of getting lifted, we have this new appreciation for the ability to put our bodies through that physical pain of working out. And so um, Arnold Schwarzenegger gave a quote um, that and at the end of the quote, it just says, this pain is not your curse. This pain is your privilege. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of clung to that. This pain is my privilege. So whenever my mind started to go into that dark place of saying, this hurts too much, this is too physically painful to get through, or my lungs are going to burst and I'm going to drown in the water. <laughs> you know, I would just think what a privilege this is that I have the ability to push myself this much. What a privilege it is to be able to represent a university as a college athlete. I need to take advantage of this. And my, at the end of my uh, freshman year, I went home for the summer and actually found that I had um, a goiter in my thyroid. And we thought it was thyroid cancer and it, it turned out to be benign, but kind of having that quick cancer scare, it just gave me so much more vigor to keep going. It's like, this is really an incredible chance and it can be taken away so quickly. And so my sophomore year, I started to learn a little bit more about visualization and about thought replacement and how powerful the mind is and how much you can learn how to control and exercise different mental muscles per se. Because I truly believe that the mind is the most powerful muscle group in the body and that confidence is a mental muscle. You know, uh, motivation is mental muscle, discipline, decision-making, all of these mental muscles come to us at different speeds and all of us have different strengths, but just like the rest of your body, if you have a weak muscle, you can exercise it. And if you exercise it on a consistent basis, it gets stronger. And so trying to learn more and more about how I could train the way I thought, the way I felt my confidence, my motivation at the end of my sophomore year, I got my first American record national title and I wanted more. So four months later we went to Olympic trials and I won Olympic trials, which was absolutely insane to me. I'd only been swimming for about three years at that point. And now all of a sudden I was going to the 2012 Olympics, you know, and, and I could see these holographic swim gods that were now in real life, real people. I was their teammate. You know, I was, I was considered almost equal. And and it just blew my mind that, you know, two years before that, I was just a ghetto girl in Mesa <laughs> and, and going, you know, kind of that, that catchphrase from like ghetto to gold was, was the most incredible ride. And going into the Olympics, my coach would just say the, the most simple phrase of the pool is just as long and the water is just as wet. If you have a lane, you have a chance. Everyone got to this competition the exact same way. They all hit a certain standard and now everyone has a chance to move forward. And it's like that with almost everything in life. Now, the difference is we're not all given the same opportunities. We're just not. You know, I wasn't given proper education, or I don't want to say proper education, but I wasn't given proper nutrition or proper training for the first 17 years of my life. So I did not have the same opportunity in that. But I found an opportunity to get to college. And once I got to college, I got there the same way everyone else did. I hit a standard. And now the, the playing field was, was even. And if you think about that, when you go into a job interview, if you got the interview, you have a chance. If you have an opportunity to go to a conference to pick up clients, you got to the conference. Now you have the next opportunity. How are you going to take advantage of it? How are you going to use your creative solutions to make something happen? And so going into the 2012 Olympics, I knew that I had the same chance as everyone else And so I I tried doing everything in my power of, you know, what kind of positive visualization I could do, what kind of um, positive thought replacements and negative thought replacements that I needed to do in order to get myself prepared. 
And when it came time for my individual race in the 100 breaststroke, I was so ready. I knew in my heart that this is my moment, that I was going to win. I was going to become that Olympic gold medalist and the rest of my life would kind of coast from there. And so when we went out there for finals, after going through prelims and semis and being ready to race the seven of the fastest females on the planet, I got up on the starting blocks, extremely confident. I, I heard the buzzer and I jumped. But while I was still in the air, I realized that the referee never said, take your mark. Mm. Stomach dropped and I hit the water and I looked around and I noticed I was the only one that jumped in and I started to panic and I didn't really know what to do. I hadn't visualized this. I didn't think about this happening in, in beforehand. And so I slowly came up and I looked around and I saw all 40,000 people in the stands were staring at me and every camera was zoomed in on my face and I, I was mortified. I was humiliated. I didn't know what to do, but I just slowly got out of the water and, and waited for someone to come up to me to let me know that my dream was now over and I'd been disqualified, but no one said anything. No one came up to say it was okay or that I was done. And so they just told everyone to get back up on the starting block mm. back up again. And I got ready. And after they said, take your mark, we took our marks and the buzzer went off and we all jumped. But the second time I jumped in, I saw this camera at the bottom of the pool that started racing with us. And I got so excited thinking that the camera was going to follow the fastest swimmer. So if I could just try and beat the camera, I would win the race. So I started racing towards the camera. And at the end of the race, the last 10 meters, I died like a dog and I hit the wall and I looked up at the jumbotron to see what place I got feeling so sure that I had gotten a medal and I'd gotten sixth place. And I realized that by following the camera, I completely abandoned my race strategy. I was so focused on the end result that I stopped paying attention to the process it would take to get there. A lot of us become that way. We become so results driven and so focused on the outcome that we stop paying attention to what's exactly in front of us and the small, simple steps of what we need to do to become successful. And that is so important. And I wish that everyone were to learn that lesson before they're in their own metaphorical Olympic final. <laughs> but that lesson hit me very hard and I'm very careful and meticulous with the, the process that I take now in, in everything that I do. And at the end of that, um, we did have the relay and I did follow my race plan and we did get a gold medal on that. And it was fantastic being able to represent your country. But a lot of the, the life lessons that I've learned along the way, the mental tricks, the, the little nuances and experiences and, and people that I've met have been so incredible that I realized that the journey that you're taking is the real meat of your success. That if someone went outside and found a PhD paper on the ground, that doesn't mean they have a PhD. If someone went outside and found an Olympic gold medal on the ground, it doesn't mean that they've won an Olympic gold medal. That's not what makes our accomplishments so successful. It's that journey. So you have to ask yourself multiple times, am I wasting my time working towards this goal? And I feel like a lot of Olympians are scared of that. Even um, high school seniors, you know, who who want to go and hang out with their friends more, but you know, are finding it difficult to spend so much time on their sport because what if it doesn't pan out? What if they don't get that athletic scholarship? What if working 70 hours a week isn't going to give you that promotion? You don't want to waste your time. And with that, there are a couple things I feel are very important. The first is realizing that you have to diversify your personal worth. Because if you put all of, all of the belief in yourself into one thing and that thing were to fail, your mentality is in grave danger. Just like investing your financial portfolio, you need to invest in multiple companies if you want your wealth to grow. You need to invest your personal worth and your personal value in multiple passions so that if one were to falter, you're still mentally stable. And I'm not saying pick up a bunch of side projects, but understand that your value as a friend is high. Your value as a significant other, as a parent, as a daughter, as a son, as a sister, as a brother is very high. What do you love to do? What are your other passions? Do you love to read? Are you a reader? Learning where your value lies outside of your, your main ultimate goal can help keep your sanity there and keep a, mental a healthy mental headspace. And just learning different things like this, I think, really help you become more successful and, and create that Olympian mindset that a lot of people strive for. 
Yeah, no, that's great. And uh, I mean, there's so many things that, I mean, it's incredible, uh, Bria, what you've just shared, because I think it started off with that, watching the Olympics, like when you were four years old and uh, watching all the gymnasts and like getting inspired by that and doing cartwheels in your your home. And then, you know, at, at some point, having the the desire and the belief that you can pursue this and, you know, having the conversation with the local swim club to give you an opportunity and a scholarship. I mean, that was like a significant step that you took because that created more opportunities. You got that coach and then who had that conversation with you uh, to, uh, you know, fall in love with swimming. Like it's like a dance in the water. And, and I think what you mentioned is so critical that having the love and appreciation for the joy of the game instead of the love of the game is so critical and important, as you said. And uh, and then that led to Texas A&M and then all the Olympic trials and then you're winning the Olympic trials and then standing next to all your idols and all the people that you looked up to and then competing with them. Uh, and then obviously we'll talk more about the 2012 uh, Olympics here in a second. But I, I really... Uh, I really liked your concept about, you know, it's not just investing in one particular thing and having your identity tied to that because it could be taken away at any given point, as you said. And it can be applicable to your business. It can be applicable to, your, you know, your way you get your satisfaction and contentment from. Uh, it could be your sport or game that you talk about. So how does one craft so let me ask you this. One of the questions we commonly get on our show is, you know, I'm good at so many things. What do I, how do I find my passion? How do I find my calling? How do I know that this is going to be my Olympic journey, regardless of what that career might be? What would be your advice be for such individuals who are trying to find that happy medium? One, I think they, they need to be more conscious of that internal dialogue and conversation they're having in their head. Because that fear of success can be crippling. You know, they, they try to, or they as an, everyone really, they're, they're looking at the different options they have in life. And they might see one that sounds incredible, but it's a lot of work. And again, is that worth it? I, I work with a lot of different business clients and trying to help them come up with different mental strategies of, of overcoming certain problems. And, you know, one might be you're, you're very talented in this area, but especially with the pandemic, what if that certain business venture just isn't viable anymore? You know, there are certain industries that are really struggling because of that. And like, like movie theaters, movie theaters are really struggling. The travel agency is really struggling. The restaurant business is, is climbing back up, but there are a lot of things that have been very hurt by this pandemic. And so if that is your passion you need to find something else, but you're a little bit afraid of the journey, I think you need to start writing down those scared or negative thoughts. Because we typically are very good at, or much better at giving advice than helping our own selves. And so I believe that when you're having any kind of turmoil within your thoughts, if you write down as detailed as you can how you feel about it, and then you put that piece of paper or that note in your phone away for 24 hours, Come back to it and read it as if your best friend was having this problem. What would you tell them? Sometimes mm-hmm. when you have a more clear mind and as you understand the situation so well, because it's your own, if someone else were to have that situation, you might be able to come up with some better advice. And the next step after that is being brave enough to actually take that advice. One of my favorite ways to spread the message of a mission here at Wisdom of Friends is through speaking. Over the last two years, I've delivered keynotes and workshops at professional associations, small and large companies, on topics related to engineering happiness, how to boost productivity, employee engagement, and workforce stability for bottom line results, and the science of happiness and the art of fulfillment. So if you think I'll be a fit for your upcoming event and want to learn more, visit the speaking link at wisdomoffriends.net and get in touch. Again, it's the speaking link at wisdomoffriends.net. Journaling is something that can uh, be uh, absolute great uh, mental therapy as well. No, I absolutely agree with you. So I want to take you back to 2012, uh, Bria, because uh, 
you know, it was really a great year for you. Uh, you know, at, at the U.S. Olympic trials, you won the 100-meter breast, uh, beating uh, Rebecca Sony, and, you know, you won the Olympic gold medal and the 400 medley relay. So let me ask you this. When you reflect back, what was so special? What was different about 2012 that you did or what worked for you or what did you do so well about 2012 that ended up becoming such a beautiful year for you, like all, all around you? Like if you had to like reflect back and dissect that, what would you say were some of the key elements that went into it and how could someone learn from that and use those ideas or those insights to replicate in subsequent years, right? I think there are a couple, couple aspects to it. One was an extreme naive confidence. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know foreign athletes. I didn't know how fast they were. I was under the impression that the U.S. was always the fastest and won all the medals, which, of course, isn't always true. Um, the U.S. Is, is very fast, but there are many talented swimmers out there, but I didn't know that. I just assumed that the U.S. was the best because that's how everyone, I assume, speaks to their team, that, you know, we are here to win all the medals, so on and so forth. And so going into these races, it was very clear to me that I was just going to win. And whenever I started to kind of doubt that, my coach, I would go up to him and, and kind of tell him that I was nervous or I didn't want to mess up. And he would just tell me straight that you are power, you are speed. You're the best person for the job. Go get it done. And I might not believe him right away because I was still a little nervous, but he would just say it again, that you are power, you are speed. You're the best person for this job. Go out there and get it done. And I love and respected that coach so much that if he said I was power, I must be. If he said I was speed, I must be fast. If he said I was the best person for the job, then there is no way I would lose. And I think going into that with that confidence, it didn't matter where anyone else was in the race. So all of us have different race strategies. Some of us go very quickly at the beginning and, and die at the end. Some of us kind of take our time at the beginning and build in quickly, but it didn't matter where anyone else was in the race because I knew that my race strategy was superior and I was going to win because my coach told me so. <laughs> and that naive confidence never allowed anything to falter. Mm. And I think that afterwards when I started to become a little bit more aware of how talented the rest of the world is, that mental scar tissue kind of started to form and that fear of success started to creep in saying, I, I know how hard they train. I've seen their workouts. You know, I've seen them in person. I've seen them race. They're very fast. And when you start to let other people win in your head, mm. it's just a race for second place. I know that's a very cliche thing that a lot of people say, but truly it, when it comes at least to physical performance, your muscles are able to push so much further than you would have known. Because if you think about it, if you're young and you touch a hot stove, it's really difficult to, for your brain to tell you to touch it again because you know the consequences. You don't want to go there. You know that you're going to burn your hand. And same thing of I've heard that you are physically able to bite through your finger, but your brain won't let you because it knows the consequences. And so moving forward, a lot of us are very very terrified or afraid of pushing ourselves further because we understand the painful consequences that might happen, you know, um, going up to someone and saying hello and being embarrassed of being shut down. We understand the consequences and we just don't allow ourselves to do it anyways, because the consequence might be larger than, or the, the, the reward might not be there for the risk. And so I, I didn't really have the fear factor going in. I might be nervous for the attention or whatnot, but I was so confident. And now it's changed very much so. And, and there's been a couple of things I've learned that one, if you are driven by worry or stress or anxiety, those can actually be very helpful tools that have led you to success before. You just have to learn how to monitor it and not let that stress manage you. You have to manage the stress or manage anxiety or the worrying because in 2016, um, I remember actually going to a doctor because I thought I had bronchitis. And I explained that I was having a difficult time breathing. And he informed me that I didn't have bronchitis. I was actually having panic attacks. And so he offered to put me on antidepressants 
to kind of help with the anxieties. And I thought it was a great idea, especially leading up to trials. If, if I could be relaxed and anxious free, everything would feel great. And so I went on the antidepressants and I stopped swimming fast because I didn't care about the results. I wasn't anxious anymore. I didn't have that, that spark. And I didn't make the 2016 team. And that was extremely damaging for my mentality. You know, I, and that's when I, I didn't really know what my identity was. I just graduated from um, A&M with my, with my master's degree, but I didn't make the Olympics. So what, what was I? You know, I was no longer a student. I was no longer going to the Olympics. Did that make me a, an ex-Olympian? Did, did that mean I wasn't going to be successful? Was I, was I going to lose my sponsors? You know, and, and it was a very crumbling experience for my identity. And, and after that, I vowed to never let that happen again. That if I were to continue my swimming career, I was going to find other things that I held my value in and that I was not just a swimmer. And so different experiences through that, I think that one kind of going back to being kind to yourself and then trying to understand what the negative thoughts are and how you're going to replace them. If you start to have that thought of, I don't want to mess up, you need to be able to replace it as quickly as you can with, I am power, I am speed, I'm the best person for the job. I am capable. These, you know, the the people in the room need to know my opinion. I am very qualified for this job interview, whatever it is. It's so much easier to be self-deprecating. And so learning how to come up with a powerful mantra to replace that negative thought can really help build your confidence going into any situation. Absolutely, Brianne. And one of the things that you shared with me last time we spoke and that really uh, left an indelible imprint on me was about fear. You said like fear is an opportunity to be brave. It's like, and every time you, you know, you go out there and be brave, it helps you grow in your confidence and like, you know, keep uh, at it. So uh, it's such an important, uh, you know, being kind to yourself. Those two things are such a such important foundational principles for winning at life in general. I mean, you know, regardless of what the outcome is, but giving it your all. It's that, uh, you know, the man in the arena quote, if you recall, it's like, you know, it's giving it your all on the court and playing full out. And that's really what it comes down to. No, that's so great. And I, I want to kind of like, ask you about what was that moment like when you stepped on that podium and accepting that gold medal with the U.S. anthem in the background and the London Olympics. Can you describe that moment? Like, what was that like for you? And it must have been so amazing. And you made the country, all of us proud. You made the country proud. So give us a little taste of what was that? What was going through your head? What was the ambience, that deco, the environment like for you over there? It's kind of a blur to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that I was smiling so hard I couldn't feel my face and I was worried about what my face looked like because I, I couldn't feel it. I couldn't tell if I was smiling anymore. Um, but it was, it was the most patriotic I've ever felt receiving that, you know, and, and it was a, a lot of um, veteran Olympians kind of told me that this isn't going to hit you for another two months. So just sink this all in. And, and just enjoy this experience because it was just kind of a dream, you know, and because to me, I hadn't really changed. I was, I was still Bria. The only difference is I learned how to move my arms and legs in the water faster. That's it. I, I didn't necessarily feel like I was a superior person or that I deserved, you know, more of this or less of that. Um, but it was, it was so interesting. I think that, that when I, came back from the Olympics and I started receiving different emails and messages from people. They would reach out and ask me if I remembered them, you know, it, it, like we were best friends for three years and then kind of fell off the side of, do you remember me? Like, why wouldn't I remember you? It was like the Olympics itself is, is a phenomenal, beautiful thing, but it's just a competition essentially that's commercialized for everyone to watch. And it was very strange to, and I appreciated the, the respect that I received for it, but it was very strange being treated differently just because I could move my arms and legs in the water. Mm. And I feel like the, because I've seen how other athletes have chosen to change their demeanor or treat others differently because of their accomplishments, it made me feel like I, I wanted to do my best to not do that. 
that when I meet someone in a different field, I treat them with the same respect because I, I admire what they do. And if they feel the same, that's great. But just because I've done something more commercialized doesn't mean that I deserve more respect or that I can treat people poorly. And I feel like if something, something that you perform, what is it doing for the rest of the world? What difference are you trying to make? I would rather be acknowledged for working with underprivileged communities and helping coach younger athletes rather than the physical ability to, you know, handle more pain than the next person. Um, I think I was kind of answering your question. I think I went off on a tangent there. <laughs> no, no, I think that was great. I mean, actually, uh, what you really uh, are talking about is a shared humanity, regardless of what titles and statuses mm-hmm. uh, we end up acquiring in our as part of our accomplishments. But at the end of the day, we are still a human being, and we still, you know, breathe the same air and have the same color of blood running through our veins. And you know, yeah. it, it really comes down to that. And I think. Uh, now that that speaks to who you are, not only as a leader, but your values about just being so grounded and uh, you know being kind and respectful and uh, loving to people around you, and uh, so that's that's so great and so inspiring. Now you also do mental clinics with uh, young kids, right? Uh, so one of the questions I have for you is, uh, what would you say to a young kid who is uh, looking to be an Olympian? What advice would you have for her? Him or her. I would try to let them understand that it is an extremely difficult road, but the rewards are immense. And to learn to love the journey, you have to love the pain. You have to love the sacrifice because if you get so tied up again in the end result, the, the pressure can, can be very crippling. And so you have to decide what you're willing to sacrifice. So for me, um, you know, I, I am very careful with my diet. You know, I, I don't eat processed sugar. I don't drink alcohol. I don't eat fried foods. That is if a sacrifice that it's very easy and I'm willing to make, um, the mental training, making sure that you are being very cognizant of the thought process that you have and building the confidence and motivation slowly and steadily and not taking off more than you can chew. And then knowing that you can't miss workouts, you know, at least in college, it was, it was very intense. If you, if you are going to practice, if you feel sick, if you have 101 fever, you're excused. If you throw up, you're excused. Other than that, you're swimming. If you have a headache, you're going to have a headache regardless. So get in the water and keep swimming. Um, and being, being willing to give up going to the parties because you have to go to bed early because you have practice the next day. Um, and, and not allowing the, the failed attempts to hinder your confidence, but just learning how you can grow from it. But um, it is a very difficult road. And if you're willing to make that sacrifice, then the rewards are phenomenal. But believing in yourself is the biggest thing. And, and one thing my coach actually told me that I really loved, um, he told me a lot of, of really great kind of one hit quotes, but in swimming and in a lot of sports, there are two types of athletes. There are the giants and the technicians. And the giants, you know, are used to winning. They're very big. They're very tall. They're very strong. They use their brute force to get what they want, but they can be beaten by the technicians. Smaller athletes that are more agile and and quick and learn how to use their technique to their advantage. And so I wouldn't think that you should allow someone's height or size intimidate you. Mm -hmm. How can you create solutions to over overcoming the giants and and the same with corporations you know some startups which are the technicians learn how to defeat the giants you just have to find those creative ways yeah the david and the goliath uh, uh metaphor there absolutely and uh, and what and this is something that we all are dealing with but specifically for the olympians now the good thing that the dates come out for the Tokyo Olympics, uh, July 23rd to August 8th now. So, you know, when you're doing everything right, you've kind of like been magnificently obsessed with it. You put in your new workout, you're managing your diet, the nutrition. Uh, I remember you saying, don't say diet, say nutrition. And uh, yeah. <laughs> the coach and, the, you know, the race strategy and all of that. And then life throws these curveballs at you, like, you know, like a pandemic. 
right? Mm-hmm. What do you do then? How do you like reevaluate all of that and readjust to, okay, what, how do you keep the sanity intact but still not lose focus of the goal? So what, what are some of the things that you're doing? Or what are some of the other athletes are doing in terms of, you know, keeping the motivation high and not getting, uh, you know, disoriented because of it? I think we, we still get disoriented every now and then. Um, I've had a very up and down journey. Uh, quick recap. I stopped swimming in 2018 and started a IT recruiting job. Um, really didn't like it. It was a very toxic environment for me. So I quit that and came back to swimming. Nine months later, I won nationals. And then my coach was Congratulations. fired. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. But I came back and, and my coach was fired. So I had to figure something out. So I moved to California and I started swimming with another coach and it was awesome and fantastic. And I finished up um, the, the fall season and then that coach was fired, but he could stay until June. But then a pandemic happened. And then I had to move back to Arizona because, you know, the pools weren't opening. I was far away from home. It was getting expensive. And now I'm here and I was ready to train with another coach. And I found out because of the pandemic, he can't take new athletes. So now I'm stuck without a coach to watch my, or um, the type of coach that I want to watch my form. And I do still have resources. I have incredible club coaches that I've worked with, but I have different needs than high school swimmers. I need a different type of program. And so, you know, without having the consistent physical support in front of me, I have to create my own program, create my own schedule and keep myself accountable to go train as hard as I can by myself without having teammates push me. It's very difficult. It's very discouraging a lot of the time, but you know, I look at it and, and I will remember some of the days that were very hard, but the story that it creates and the journey that, that I am forming right now, I think makes almost a better story. And, and I try to use that to inspire myself, you know, because I, I believe that if you can learn to be your own hero you can also create phenomenal things. And, and one of the reasons why I say that is we become very self-conscious about whether or not we want something because of the hard work or that it, we wonder if we're capable of doing it. So one kind of mental trick that I use often is I think of my 10-year-old self and how excited she would be if she knew the position I was in. If she was sitting there cross-legged looking at the TV saying, when I am 28 years old, I won't have the type of coach that I need, but I have an opportunity to train for the Olympics and make it. Am I going to be too distraught and discouraged and not try? Or am I going to do everything I possibly can to make this happen? So a lot of the time I I look at the people I'm trying to inspire or help and that gives me strength. But other times I think of that 10 year old self and I think, Oh, I'm going to do it for her. She deserves this. That little 10 year old who grew up in the ghetto in Mesa, who had to portion her meals because there were so many people at the table who never got to have this thing or that thing, but she gets to train for the Olympics and she, she might make it again. Oh, I'm going to do it for her and I'm going to make this worth it. You know, and, and I think of, of all the, the other the children and, and even other, other business executives that I can help coach and teach along the way of how powerful they can make that motivation and discipline and, and self-respect and self-love. And I, I do it a lot for the journey, to be honest, because the Olympics, as incredible as it is, people forget about it. You know, 2012 was eight years ago and there aren't very many, even, even big swim fans who can tell you who went to the 2012 Olympics. But if I tell them my story, they remember that. And that is much more long lasting than, you know, the 10 days that I spent competing. And so when you learn to understand and value the journey that you're on and doing everything you can in your power to make it a fantastic story for yourself, you can get through those hard times. And it's easy saying it. It's much harder doing it. (laughs) I still struggle a lot. You know, it's, it's like 1130 in the afternoon. I'm like, do I go and work out for four hours right now? Or do I just wait 15 more minutes? Do I want to eat first? Or do I want to do this? Um, and so it, when you're struggling with that kind of motivation, it really helps to sit down ahead of time and write down your schedule into smaller pieces. You know, if I just say, okay, work out tomorrow, that's not good enough. I'm going to say by 1130, I need to have eaten, 
have been very hydrated and be dressed ready to go to the gym because I need to leave the gym by this time for this meeting. So making the decisions for your future self can be extremely helpful and help keep you on task. That's so great. And I have no doubt in my mind, Bria, like you will overcome all the challenges that comes your way. You'll like not only overcome it, you'll obliterate, you know, obliterate through that. So that's, that's going to be so. I'm uh, looking forward to all the continued successes uh, in the future. We're going to switch gears and get into the, in the interest of time, we're going to get into the rapid fire round. I could continue talking to you all day long because you're just so amazing. <laughs> uh, so the rapid fire round, it's the first question that comes to your mind. Uh, so, Bria, my first question to you is Are you ready? All right. So, here's your, what's your favorite uh, music band? Right now, it's probably The Strokes. Okay. And then uh, what book have you read again and again? Are some one of your favorite books? Anything that you could recommend for our audience? Actually, I've read Chasing Excellence by mm. Ben Bergstrom, I believe is his name. And it's a, a coach that um, coached uh, CrossFit champions. And there's a lot of cheesy one-liners, but they, they really get me going. And I, I think I've read that book three or four times. Okay. And then uh, what color describes you best? I would say yellow. Mm. Very happy. The, f- <laughs> the five most important things in life, according to you? Faith, family, friends, fitness, and finance. Oh, nice. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, if you could have any message of your choice on a billboard, what would that be? Honestly, it would be be kind to yourself. I like that. That's really, that's really a motto, uh, seems like. And that's so true yeah. and so important. So great. So, and we're going to move into, I've got final three questions for you, Bria. And this mm-hmm. is, what is your current personal business passion project that you're working on? And uh, what are you looking forward to in the next uh, 12 months, 6 to 12 months? And of course, the Tokyo Olympics. But anything else? Uh, what are you looking forward to? So I actually started doing a lot more coaching. Um, I used to just mentor young athletes on the mental side of sport until I realized that that those concepts can be broadened into the business world. And I've actually, through my Airbnb experience that I've had online, I've been able to meet a lot of, of different executives that have taken on those services. And then I started to realize that I, although I very much enjoy working with um, with different occupations and, and different fields and, and learning more about them and, and how to help them, I still want to be able to make a difference for underprivileged communities. And so I've developed a sort of program that if I can charge um, corporations for bigger speeches or executives for the mental coaching, their payments will sponsor an underprivileged child or an underprivileged group. So I, I charge a little bit more now for my um, speeches for corporations and say, hey, I charge this much because this will allow me and my time to give this same kind of presentation for a boys and girls club, you know, or um, any type of charity. And so a lot of the time I'll offer it to them saying, do you have any organizations that you work with that would benefit from this kind of talk? And, and please let me know and I will schedule one with them right away free of cost because your payment has paid for theirs. And so it, it's kind of like a, a give one ta- or um, buy one, give one um, kind of program that I would like to help develop because I, my, my big passion is, is helping those underprivileged children understand that they have so much potential, so much talent that is just ready to be recognized, but they don't have the same opportunities, but they just need to be told that, you know, or, or be given those chances of finding those opportunities and learning how to network and, and use their words and actions to create more opportunities for themselves. Um, but there's not a lot of money in that. and I need to be able to support myself. So bringing that valuable message to those who can pay for it and are willing to pay for others to learn from that has, has been a big thing for me. Great. And then we'll include all of that uh, in the show notes as well. So how can people, uh, how would you like people who are, looking to, uh, you know, contact you for coaching services and speaking engagements and mm-hmm. how can they contact you best? What What's your preference? I think the safest way without giving out too much personal information is just <laughs> reaching out through LinkedIn. 
Okay. Typically, when I meet with with a, a group on a smaller basis, I, I feel very free to give out my email. Um, but reaching out through LinkedIn is wonderful. Any of the social medias, um, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, all of my social media is just Bria Larson. And I'm, the, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one with that particular name spelled that way. Um, so just, yeah, please feel free to reach out. I love working with, with all types of groups and people. And, and you know, it's, it's my passion to try and solve those problems, the problems that, that can't be figured out right in front of you. And so that consulting per se, that motivational consulting is so much fun for me. And I really enjoy trying to solve the puzzle and helping people. Yeah. And we'll include uh, your LinkedIn and uh, your, all the social media connections on this uh, show notes so people can uh, get in touch with you. So what are three things you're grateful for today, Priya? Today, um, my dog, he is a Velcro dog. (laughs) So he's an Australian shepherd, but he follows me everywhere and he's, he's always happy to see me. And I love that. Um, I have a very supportive boyfriend and he has been very patient and has helped me a lot along the way. And honestly, I'm, I'm very thankful to be healthy right now. Being, being able to be healthy enough to swim, again, is, is such a privilege in itself. And I'm very, very grateful to, to have that. That's so awesome. And so, Bria, I want to take a couple of moments here to acknowledge you. Uh, because, you know, Olymp- being an Olympian is not just uh, something that anybody can uh, just go out there and do it. Because it takes, it's a philosophy of life. And, you know, it takes a little uh, more than just uh, a dream, but it takes dedication, excellence, hard work, and passion, and which you have, like, demonstrated uh, so so much from your sharing and what you've done in your life. I mean, it's such an inspiration for all of us who are listening to your, you know, your success stories and your uh, ebb and flow and ups and downs and everything you've done to achieve it because it really become a symbol of inspiration for so many people out there. And thank you for being who you're being and uh, what you contribute to society and making a nation and making our, and the, the spirit of Olympic Olympic athlete uh, memorable for all of us. So thank you of for course. everything. <laughs> absolutely. So one, uh, yeah, absolutely. And then one final question, and this is how we wrap up all our interviews, Priya, and that is why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends. The wisdom of friends? Yeah, the podcast name. <laughs> oh, that's, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I thought in general. Um, you know, I think that listening to a, a fantastic podcast such as Wisdom of Friends allows the different perspectives that they need to hear. You know, I, I feel like opening your mind to new ideas can only spark epiphanies for yourself. And being able to find a resource such as this to broaden your horizons is only going to benefit you. Oh, that's so great. Thank you, Bria. Appreciate it. I really enjoyed our conversation as always. This has been great. Uh, thank you for uh, your generous sharing and sharing your heart out. And like, it just shows your dedication and contribution and, uh, you know, to society and what you're about. So thank you. And for everybody listening, with that, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Carla Rass. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to wisdomoffriends.net to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content. We hope you'll pass along our web address, wisdomoffriends.net, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archive section on the website for previous episodes and subscribe on iTunes, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This has been a Seven Symphonies production Join us next time for another edition of The Wisdom of Friends.